Hello and welcome to Think Business Futures. I'm your host, Josh Green, coming to you from the studios of 2SER in Sydney on the Gadigal land of the Eora Nation and right around Australia on the Community Radio Network. Each week, we take a closer look at the business issues making up the news. This program is made possible with the assistance of the UTS Business School. The plant-based meat industry in Australia is booming, with Aussies forking out $185 million for meat alternatives in 2020. As more of us look to ditch meat or eat less of it, the seemingly healthy options we're turning to are garnering some scrutiny. A lot of these are highly processed, and it raises the question, just how plant-based are they? How much bigger is this industry going to get? Are we headed for a world without meat? To discuss this, I was joined earlier by Hope Johnson and Natalina Slatevska. Let's meet them. I'm Hope. I'm a senior lecturer at QUT in Brisbane, Queensland University of Technology, and I'm in the law school there, and my area of expertise is food law and policy. Hi, my name is Natalina Zlatevska. I'm Associate Professor of Marketing at the University of Technology, Sydney. Growth in plant-based meats is really spearheaded overseas in Europe and in the US. How does Australia's industry compare? I would say Australia is the jurisdiction with the um, highest amount of IP patents related to plant-based and other kinds of meat alternatives, so the fifth in the world. So we're up there and, I mean, with our links with the Asia-Pacific region, where we are well suited to exploiting different opportunities that might come up in this growing sector. And there have been some very high estimates of how much the plant and meat alternative space could be. I say plant and meat, I mean plant-based and cell-based um, alternatives, the, the value of those. And certainly we have seen an increase in universities investing in this space as well. So I, I would say that we're certainly not as heavy hitters as the US or the EU, of course, but they have a pre-existing competitive advantage in ag, biotech and other kinds of advanced technologies in the agricultural space. So we would expect them to be leaders as well as Israel as well for the same reasons. But certainly Australia is, is up there in this sector. Yeah. Of course, the reason we're here talking about this topic is the Senate inquiry into definitions of meat and other animal products, which is looking into product labelling of plant-based meats in Australia and how that may impair the meat and livestock industry. Hope if I can turn to you first on this one, what does meat mean? We have some pretty clear legal definitions around meat in Australia at the various state and territory levels, but essentially it, it means that, and this is you know, taking apart the legal definitions, it means flesh from a carcass of an animal um, and what an animal is is also then defined in the law. So we have quite clear definitions of what meat is in Australia already. The controversy here, I guess, begins when meat terms are used on the packaging of plant-based alternatives. Think tank Food Frontier looked at 252 plant-based meat products and they found all of them have some kind of qualifier term to indicate they're meat-free. Are plant-based manufacturers using meat terms and imagery to try to convince people to buy their product? Uh, certainly, um, the consumer studies do show that using meat and dairy terms is incredibly useful from a cultural perspective. In Western cultures, we're used to meat playing a particular role in a meal. Um, if you think of a meal as having various components, we are used to meat and dairy um, playing a particular role. So if we can circum, if we can communicate how you're supposed to use a product by making those analogies, then certainly it does really help with consumer understanding. So then they're more likely to purchase and understand how to use the product. 
Yeah, that's um, that's exactly right, Hope. So, I mean, you have, for a lot of consumers, what is quite a novel product coming onto market. And without those descriptions, consumers simply wouldn't, wouldn't have any understanding of expectations for what that would taste like, um, look like, how to even use it, right? So I think there is a place for some sort of a description. Um, and I think for a consumer, yeah, it is, it is quite useful to have them. All right, so what producers are putting on their packaging to sell the product is one thing, and of course that's a big deal. But moving beyond that, what is the image of plant-based meats? Like, Can they be gourmet and highbrow, and can they be a grocery staple for someone on a modest budget? So, so this is actually um, it, it's a really interesting question that you've got, Josh, and something that when you approached me a couple of days ago, I have thought a lot about. And I'm still trying to get my understanding around who the target market is for these products, right? So on the one hand, the first thing that comes to mind is vegan, vegetarians, but then from what I've seen with the packaging and the look and feel of these products, right, a lot of them are modified to bleed like meat, right, to smell like meat, to sizzle like meat, to taste like meat. And for a lot of vegans and vegetarians, that would probably be unappealing. Uh, So I I don't necessarily think that that is the target market. But then would it be the mainstream consumer that would be the market here and getting people to switch from eating meat to perhaps consuming more plant-based products? And from, I mean, at least from a marketing perspective, here it becomes a little bit more complicated because, yes, these are the consumers who want something which substitutes meat for them, right? And in essence, they're thinking that perhaps they're maybe being a little bit healthier or we're definitely seeing these halo effects come into play. But, I mean, this is this is a very artificial, very processed product, right? So, and it's probably as far removed from natural. I mean, a lot of the packaging on these things, they look and feel, or they have this sort of idea that they're natural and they, they're positioned as such, but it's as far removed from natural as you can get. This is highly ultra processed product. Yeah, that's um, absolutely right that they're targeting flexitarians. So they're, they're not targeting your vegans and vegetarians because vegans and vegetarians have already largely figured out what to eat and how to eat. And, and often it, it isn't these sort of meat-like substitutes and the market, it's a very small amount of people are actually vegetarian or vegan and it's just not worth the market investment to go after vegetarians and vegans, as well as the fact that they're not interested broadly what's what's coming out anyway. I would say that there is a concern when we're using the terms plant-based because it does imply that something is made from vegetables when, in fact, it is not directly made from vegetables. It's um, vegetables that have gone through multiple industrial processes, you know, heating, cooling, added dyes, food additives. All of these different things have come in together to make this product represent and look like a meat and dairy alternative. And that also has its own environmental costs that are worth noting that when you, it's not like you are getting legumes from a store and cooking them up and eating them, which is obviously um, ideal. 
what you were doing is you were getting something and you're having all these industrial processes to that and that necessarily comes with its own environmental costs and waste as well so and of course if we could even go into the packaging of it as well we could think about that as another added dimension so yeah there, there's certainly the advertising of the words plant-based is concerning cell-based is slightly different uh in the sense that in a, in a pure biophysical sense it is the flesh of an animal it might not come from a carcass as such that would depend on the process but in a biophysical sense it is actually meat and Singapore has approved cell-based chicken for sale in one of its restaurants over there it's actually a really interesting marketing thing because you you get the chicken and you know you can access an app that will tell you about how eating that chicken will help restore rainforests around the world and so all these sort of strong environmental claims around it but certainly in a biophysical sense is much more like chicken whether it is actually or is chicken whether it is actually um, ultra processed is one for um, people to debate hope you mentioned the the environmental costs there but for the consumer there's also a financial cost an average price difference of about 50 percent more for plant-based options what effect does that have for consumers I mean, I think what we're seeing is sort of the Tesla of food. So this is sort of like the luxury food item that is targeting particular upper class or mid class consumers. So it's not going after people from different other socioeconomic classes. It is your Tesla of food. And so it isn't, um, it's making a lot of green claims and in doing so simplifying various environmental costs, but the costs of it are, are restrictive. The goal is obviously for some people anyways, for some proponents and developers to significantly replace meat and dairy with these items and so we would have to see a cost change for that to occur but yes certainly they're going after a more wealthy consumer or a consumer who's willing to spend that amount of money or and can spend that amount of money so it is distinct like it does raise issues of who can access these green alternatives and who can't and natalina You've looked at the way in which we may view meat as a status symbol when it comes to appearing attractive to others. Your findings there indicated perhaps straight men would be maybe more inclined to view meat as somehow sexier than some kind of vegetarian or meat analogue. Would plant-based meat alternatives be able to more easily reach more consumers if they were viewed as sexier? Interesting question. <laughs> uh, look, so what, what our research has found is that meat in general, right, uh, relays this higher socioeconomic status, right? So it is a status symbol. And that's something that goes back for generations, right? So if you think back to the consumption of meat, so every holiday, every celebration, it's marked with a feast. And that feast usually revolves around meat, some sort of meat as the cent- the centre part of the party, right? The centre part of the table. Now, I don't think that will change. And I think a lot of, and and this is probably more of a labeling issue, a lot of the fact that these um, plant-based or alternative protein source products, right, are banking on the use of meat on their labeling is perhaps in some way to try to tap into the status and these inherent beliefs that people have attached to meat. So somehow it's transferring that. And I've seen some of these packages have like, chickens on them and the word plant-based is very small and it's um you know it's it's almost like and i've seen some of um the commentary in the senate inquiry state that some consumers are even misled to purchase these products thinking that they were actually meat look i think that there is a little bit of that status symbol 
trying to rub off on these products and trying to get people to purchase them? Will we switch to having, you know, the the turkey, which is not the turkey, which looks and tastes like turkey and bleeds like turkey, but is plant-based or stem-based on the Christmas table? I don't know. I'm not sure. I'm not sure that we're, we're quite there yet. But it is, it's a really, really interesting point, though. I guess moving to a more bigger picture kind of view, what are the main drivers behind people eating less meat? Is, is it a health thing or is it about sustainability? What we've seen in the policy discourse around diets in the last five years is a significant shift towards understanding that our diets have an impact. And I don't mean in an individual consumer sense, I mean in a population sense, that our diets have an impact on what's produced and what's and how it's produced. Um, And so increasingly, there's been large scale international institutions coming out and saying we do need in Western countries in particular uh, to improve the sustainability of our diets, which has often a win win effect in terms of public health. So if we're eating less processed fruit um, and vegetables and grains, ultimately, that is good for the environment and it's and it's better for us. So there has been a significant push towards um, recognising the environmental costs of our diets and the sort of mutual win-wins there. And so we've seen a significant increase in the number of national dietary guidelines around the world that are recognising the environmental components of a diet. In Australia, Certainly the last time we had our um, dietary guidelines updated in 2013, I believe, there was a push from various sectors to recognise that sustainability of diets mattered uh, and that we need to be um, really addressing this as a public interest issue. Um, Having said that, there was a push to not include that in the dietary guidelines and it was um, discussed at the time that this was partly due to um, a meat industry and interest um, in maintaining current consumption levels of meat in Australia which I will say are either the world's largest, we're largest consumers of meat or we're the second largest consumers of meat. Um, And it's a significant amount, obviously more than what we could have healthy diets without consuming such high levels. We do know it's almost common knowledge now. And I think the questions kind of reveal the level to which most people know that meat and dairy has a significant environmental impact. We've certainly seen a lot more mainstream discourse and coverage of the issues with meat and dairy production um, and a growing awareness of the climate change link with um, how we produce our meat, including deforestation um, and then the grazing itself, as well as the manure and waste products from that. I'd also note the increased risk of zoonotic disease spread from intensive industrial agriculture, which is obviously from COVID-19, had an increased interest in that too, when you've got animals close together and, you know, you're pumping them with antibiotics, et cetera. There are significant public health issues at stake as well in our production of meat. There's also, in addition to what Hope just mentioned, perceptions of health from a consumer's perspective. And there is an appeal for consumers currently, if we want to call it a market trend, for plant-based products, right? And anything that is plant-based, there is this health halo that it must be healthy. So if it's got plants in it, then it must be the healthier alternative to meat and dairy. I mean, dairy's going, the dairy industry is going through a similar sort of thing at the moment. The irony, I think, of this is that, as Hope was saying, a lot of these products, I mean, we're talking about, for a lot of them, they're ultra-processed. We've got modification a lot some of them you know are produced from stem cells so it's and we're not talking about you know cracking open you're right I mean hope cracking open the can of legumes and 
creating the veggie burger patty as what we had used to see a few decades ago, right, when vegetarian burgers had initially first come onto the market. So I think from a consumer perspective, understanding the processing of these products, it's complicated and there is a lot of science involved in it. And so there is just this general rule that, well, it's not meat, it must be plant, and if it's plant, it's healthy, and there is currently an appetite for that. I would probably just call it a consumer. It's a market trend that's happening. Um, a number, a couple of decades ago, there was a big push against genetically modified foods, right? And that was the big thing on labeling. Um, before that, you know, fat was the enemy. And in the 90s, we had a high sugar diet as a consequence. And now it's all about reduce the sugar consumption and increase fat consumption. Full fat products are good. So these things are cyclical and they are trends. And what we're seeing, I think, happening in the marketplace at the moment is purely a response to consumer demand. I guess I would add to that as well that I always think of this not so much as a consumer and a market issue because you know, I'm more interested, I think, in the public and the political implications. And if a product is saying that it's healthier and it's more sustainable and that by purchasing this product, you know, you can have a, a better world and that this is how we transform our food systems is through individual consumer action and decision-making into these capital-intensive high-tech products. Likewise, this is how you change the word by buying organic beef. I think that's deeply problematic because people need to be understanding that we need more change of our food systems than what can occur through markets alone. And there does need to be um, strong political push towards a more sustainable, healthier food system. Um, and simply individual consumer choices is not going to get us there. So I think beyond just influencing markets and trends, this has political implications for our understanding as the uh, as the public and a voting public on what are the food system issues and how can we solve them. I think in your uh, submission, you were saying that the inquiry is asking the wrong questions. So from a political point of view, what are the right questions to be asking? I think the right questions to be asking are what kinds of future food systems do we want in Australia? What are the diverse ways that we can bring about a more sustainable, just, healthy food system that is ethical? How can we be supporting more diverse grain, uh, vegetable, fruit kinds of production in Australia, increasing our fruit and veg production? What kinds of regulatory interventions are required to get us there, whether that be school feeding programs, um, right to public procurement, to you know restricting of marketing of different food products. I think we need to be creative. We need to be thinking more broadly about how can we bring about better food systems and not just focusing on narrow industry interests about what is and is not meat. Um, I think we need to be asking, well, what do we want the future of our food to be and not just letting it not just letting these different interests tell us or influence the regulatory focus. Um, we should be having public democratic discussions about the future of meat and, and dairy, the future of our diets and the future of our food systems and thinking creatively at this critical juncture in our food systems and in, a, in our broader society brought about by climate change, et cetera, to rethink our production and consumption and think creatively about how we get there. In an advanced projection of where the plant-based meats industry could be headed, uh, the industry adds about $3 billion to the economy in 2030 and directly employs more than 5,000 people. What would need to happen for us to get there? 
Australia has a very liberalised agricultural system compared to other most other countries, and besides maybe New Zealand is our close counterpart in the sense that we don't provide a lot of subsidies and producer supports. I guess I would envisage a system where less sustainable forms of food production, whether that be meat alternatives or whether that be other kinds of products, um, where we help transition towards my, more biodiverse farming systems that are less focused on externalised inputs. So I, I guess I, I would say that increased producer supports to transition in different ways to different modes of production, whatever those may be, would be an important part of our, our future. I would hesitate to say that we should be fully focusing on, on a plant-based evolution in Australia as a transition pathway. I think we need multiple transition pathways. And for the reasons that Natalina and I have raised, I think discussing it as a plant-based thing is kind of problematic because it's not we're not necessarily talking about plant-based foods anyway noting of course that meat and dairy is also used in ultra processed products so quite significantly so so if we want to address ultra processed food we'll be addressing all kinds of meat dairy and meat alternatives so i guess i would say i'd like to see increase support for diverse producer systems um, to help us transition. And that that requires new knowledge and new infrastructure to help us um, move towards a more sustainable methods of production. Likewise, I think, of course, um, we need to be creating more sustainable diets. And I think I've detailed some various ways in which we could do that as well. I mean, from a consumer marketing perspective, I think one of the avenues that we really need for consumers is helping them understand nutrition and helping them really understand food. Because at the moment, I mean, there are many, many contexts where we are seeing these health halo effects, right? And if you were to ask me today, what is a healthy food? I'd say to you, it depends. It depends on what your goal is. It depends on what you're trying to achieve, depends on whose perspective you're taking. And it's not very clear. So generally, nutritional literacy among consumers is very low. And I think we need to start educating consumers on, I mean, there's been a lot of discussion, at least in the reports that I've seen related to the inquiry about labeling and labeling generally is confusing. I mean, consumers look at a product's label and they look for an immediate shortcut in, okay, what's the best way for me to try to understand this and try to make a decision on these products, often in crowded supermarket shelves where consumers are very, very short on time and they're looking for these heuristics, right, shortcuts to decision-making. And I think we need to be better educating consumers in how to understand food products, how to understand where food comes from, perhaps for, you know, and this could be possibly for children um, as part of educational programs starting from a young age, we're really saying this is how food is manufactured, this is how food is present in its raw form, and this is what healthy food is, and this is what diets should be made up of primarily. And I think that's, I mean, in order to advance towards a healthier, more sustainable uh, community, I think we probably need a little bit more education around that. Are we on our way to a world where plant-based meat alternatives take over and meat just becomes obsolete? I'll probably I'll chime in here first. Look, I don't think so. Um, I really don't think so. I think there was a, a really, really good comment that came, was in one of the reports you know, attached to this inquiry. But look, I think 
you know, there is an increase in meat consumption. I mean, we are on a trajectory here and that's obvious, but I think we also need to diversify where we need to provide consumers with alternative protein products. Now, highlighting protein as the only macronutrient here, I mean, that's vital because it's just an alternative protein product. It's not healthier, it's not unhealthier, it's not, you know, it's obviously more processed than the natural form of meat, but is it equally as processed as some of the processed meat products? That's to be argued. But I don't think that we're, you know, I don't think we're going to stop eating meat, right? I mean, we've eaten meat for a very, very long period of time. And the research that I've looked at is you know, there is status associated with meat consumption. That's not going away. That hasn't changed. And in one of our studies, we had a study where we gave them a veggie burger disguised as a meat product and a meat product. And we still found that people chose the meat product, particularly when they were lower in socioeconomic status, right? Because it's, it's status signaling for people. So I don't think that's going to change. We have, as consumers, we have attachments to meat and dairy products. It's necessary for our diets. We need the protein from it. But I think we need to also be providing consumers with alternate sources of protein. And I don't necessarily disagree with what that industry is trying to do, but I think the messaging around it, the packaging of it, the labelling of it, the positioning of it perhaps needs some work. I, I think uh, we're definitely on a path towards increased plant-based meat alternative consumption. I think that that has its own problematic aspects to it, such as corporate consolidation in the food system continues through this particular pathway because it's a very privatised process. I think the ecological crises, the multiple ecological crises and public health crises that are facing the food systems are, are significant and will be um, significant on our diets in the future and currently. And it's hard to predict where we will head there and, and, and how our future of our food will look um, and taste and feel like and how we will obtain it. But certainly we can't continue on um, with the current food system that we have and the current modes of production in Australia around meat and dairy are unsustainable on a broad, in a broad sense, noting different farms are very different contexts. I think that there are big issues with the legitimacy of meat from an ethical perspective in, in intensive production systems that also need to be accounted for. So I see big changes um, to the future of animal agriculture from various sources. And one of those might be these more capital intensive plant-based products or cell-based, I don't think that they are the only pathway or even a, a predominant pathway towards deeper structural change in the food system. If anything, they're kind of just a continuation of, of our current food system, which is obviously something worth interrogating. That's all for today's panel. Thank you to my guests, Natalie Nazlatevska, and Hope Johnson. You can catch the full show online wherever you get your podcasts and don't forget to tell your friends or leave a review. I'm your host, Josh Green. And don't worry, Toby Hemmings will catch you back here next week.